0: We're going to start a new series today that will go through the summer months. I'm not sure how it's going to end. I just know how it's going to start. Okay, Um, uh, we're going to study the book of Judges. So if you'll find that, we'll be in Judges 4 today. If you're looking at the table of contents in your Bible, I can talk you through it a little bit. The first five books of the Bible are kind of called the Law, and that's Genesis, Exodus, etc., etc. That goes on through, and then. The next segment of of, uh, biblical history is the time called Joshua. You'll read that in there. Uh, That's the time where uh, Joshua was was conquering and patriating the land of Canaan that had been promised to Abraham. Well, this segment of Judges comes next, and it's the next period of Israel's history. And it's a troublesome time. We'll talk about that. But we're going to at least look at four of those Judges in the month of June. We may, I may decide at the end of that to spend a little more time there because it's just such rich material. And uh, I honestly can't remember the last time I've taught through any any of the book of Judges. So this is going to be kind of fun for me. And uh, I always learn more when I'm teaching you. So. Um, anyway, that's kind of where we're going to be, and we're going to look at really the fourth judge that's mentioned there today in chapter four, So, if you can find it. Now, my question was that I left with you to kind of contemplate, some become leaders by just accepting a position. Others uh, are, become, uh, are just kind of leaders by their very nature. Some are both, uh, they've, they've accepted a position and they're just natural leaders as well. Well, as we begin this new series, we're going to look at some men and women whom God called to leadership, and we're going to use that as a springboard uh, to challenge each other to find out what God is calling us to and what we should do about that. So let me give you a little bit of historical background in addition to what I've already said here. Um, Joshua had been appointed by God. Commissioned by Moses to lead the nation of Israel into occupying the promised land, Canaan. Uh, You can read about that in the book bearing Joshua's name. But there was, it's interesting because Moses had led the people out of uh, Egyptian bondage, and then he literally passes the baton, passes his uh, shepherd's staff probably to Joshua and says, Now you are to be in charge of the next 40 years or so, and Joshua was, did an amazing job as a leader. He was as much of a leader of patriating the land, uh, a, a great leader in doing that as Moses had been in leading them through the 40 years previous. But interestingly, and you and I know this is a problem, interestingly, coming out of that period of time, where Joshua was the clear leader and everybody knew it, No one was deputized or assigned leadership after Joshua. And that's where we find ourselves in the book of Judges. Um, In in Joshua's farewell address, which you can read about at the end of Joshua, um, he warns the Israelites not to lapse into some kind of uh, bondage or serving other gods, but they did that. And what followed was disaster after disaster in the absence of kind of at least a designated clear leader. So the book of Judges is is uh, really dealing mainly with this cycle of sin that Israel experienced during the period of Judges. We'll talk about it. Now, I want to give you, um, uh, there's probably 300 to 400 years that the book of Judges occupies, so this is not a short span of time. Imagine... Um, the U.S.'s history, and then some. So it's that period of time, okay? Um, and during that time, there was a pattern that recurs, and you can read about it in several places. Uh, it's going to happen at least nine times. We'll read about it in the Book of Judges. But but um, uh, let me give you four kind of alliterations, of two kind of alliterations of the four stages of this pattern. They got into, okay? One of them, all of them start with S's if you want to write them down. Sin, sorrow, supplication, and salvation, okay? So, in other words, they sinned. They began to to be um, idolatrous, um, and and they they were sorry about that after they got taken over by some other group. They supplicated, or they asked God to forgive them, and then a judge came along to save them. There's another alliteration we can use that would all start with the word with, with R. Uh, that would be rebellion, retribution, repentance, and restoration. That's a pretty good one. Uh, and you can come up with your own. But there's, you kind of see the pattern. They got in trouble because of their own sin. They cried out to God because the people around them were making their lives miserable. God sent them a judge and restored them. But then the pattern went right back and recurred again, because of this lack of overarching leadership. So we're going to see this cycle at least seven times in the book of Judges, and uh, we're going to kind of deal with that here. Now, Jeff, I've asked you to read. There are some incredible names in this. So I hope we'll still be friends when this class is over. You can. You've got my
1: permission to skip any name you want to skip. Okay. Okay. All right. We didn't have to do any of this reading the last two weeks. Uh, you, we'll have a discussion of what that means, okay? But if you'd read the first three verses, I'd appreciate it. I'll do my best. After Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, a king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harishbeth Hagoyam. Good luck with that because one. Because yeah. he had 900 iron chariots and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. Give him a hand. I think he did really well. But What did
0: I practice at the breakfast table this morning? Hagosh, Hagoyim, and I still don't have it right. Um, But, um, okay, so we're talking about the year 1225 or so. There have been 80 years of peace in Israel. And now it's not a time of peace. And we're going to pick it up right there at the beginning of Judges 4. The evil done by Israel is kind of interesting. It is uh, in the middle of this cycle... This is going to be about the fourth time they've done this cycle. And they've been saved by God's intervention. They're giving them a judge. The first one's name was Othniel. Othniel. The second one's name was Ehud. Or Ehud. You can say it either either way. Uh, Ehud. Um, All right. Um, The third one's name, just previous to what we're going to study today, uh, his name was... um, um, Shamgar. There's just one verse in 331 that talks about Shamgar. He was a guy that uh, was pretty good at wielding an ox goad. He evidently killed 300 guys with an ox goad or something. Uh, Ehud, if you recognize that name, uh, I was looking at this stuff this morning. If you remember, a, recent, a fairly recent uh, prime minister of Israel, his name was Ehud. In fact, he had a last name that we're going to study today. This guy must have been named after two of the judges of Israel because his name was Ehud Barak. Remember that guy? In fact, he's in the news this week because he is like, like uh, in this country, a former president who is on the case of the current president. He doesn't like a Netanyahu, so he's kind of criticizing Netanyahu. But he was, he was the prime minister a few years ago. But his name, interestingly, was Ehud Barak. Now, I'm going to, for obvious reasons, not call Barak Barak. It's spelled different, and it's pronounced different, okay, for obvious reasons. Not, don't, don't take any politics into this. It's just a different guy. It's pronounced different. It's spelled different, okay? So his name is Barak. Uh, we're going to meet Barak, and we're going to meet the leader who becomes the judge here, whose name is, is uh, Deborah. Now, look with me. Go back to chapter 3 and look at verse 5. Here's the problem. The sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Perizzites. Okay, whatever, yeah. Um, And they took their daughters for themselves as wives. Not supposed to do that. And they gave their own daughters to their sons. And because of that, they served their gods. Catch that? The sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord, their God, and served the Baals, that's another God group, and the Ashtaroth. Now, what, so basically the problem was, and it's kind of uh, uh, synopsized here in what I just read in these three verses. Basically, they committed idolatry. And we're going to talk about the um, outcomes of idolatry here, but basically this is the problem. Um, uh, And and there's a verse that I also want you to see that we'll come back to time after time. Go to 17.6. So go to the right a little way, a few pages. 17.6. This is gonna, it's gonna be one of those um, uh, summary verses that talks about what is going on. Now you're gonna, if you're like me, you're going to hear this and think that sounds really familiar to me. Listen look at listen to 17:6. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone every man did what was right in his own eyes. Sound familiar? Sounds like the New York Times. I'm not criticizing the New York Times, you're saying it sounds like our day, doesn't it? Everyone did. There was no real leadership. And everyone, so therefore, everybody did what they thought was right. Now, here's the problem with that. Um, God and his people often disagree on what is evil. Look at four one that Jeff wrote a minute ago. And then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. There is a very small step, a very subtle short step between doing what is right in our own eyes and doing what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. Can I say that again? It's not a very far step. It's not a leap, certainly, to go from doing what is right in my own eyes to doing what's evil in God's eyes. And I want us to think about that week after week as we're dealing with this. Because how many of us have been in conversations when somebody is involved in some kind of uh, activity that is, is not only sinful, but it's it's devastating to them personally. And they've said, you know, I'm just doing what I think is the right thing. I'm, I've got freedom to do what I want to do, and I'm going to do it. Everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. And it just doesn't take much of a step to go from there to, and they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So if you can follow me, track with me on this, I don't want to find myself in that place where I'm just doing what's right in my own eyes. I was a senior in college and I was working for the college where I was attending. Uh, not where I work now, but a college down in Florida, and uh, had a friend who's now still a friend. Uh, I was uh, the men's resident director on campus, which was an interesting thing. Uh, Rhonda and I lived in a trailer on campus, and uh, it was right at the end of the soccer field, so all the pictures came off the wall after practice every day, because they fell off the wall when they hit the side of our mobile home. But, uh, but I remember a friend of mine, who is still a friend of mine, but I remember him doing something clearly wrong And saying to me, he was from South Carolina, he said to me, I know in my heart I have done nothing wrong. And I basically had to call him out and say, Danny, you did know that was wrong. I don't want to be in the position of doing that which is right in my own eyes. Now, with that as a backdrop then, let's look at what caused this issue that they're going to deal with. Um, uh, In verse 2, Jeff read for us and mentioned this area uh, being led by the Jabin, who's kind of the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Now, Hazor was eight miles, if you can think of the land of Israel, eight miles northwest, or or north-northwest, really, of Galilee. Um. Joshua had completely conquered them. You read about that in Joshua 11, 10 through 14. We won't go there, but Joshua had completely conquered these people. But he left behind the people in that area. So if you look at how they patriated the land of Israel, uh, the the, uh, descendants of Naphtali were supposed to be up there. Uh, That was one of the sons of Jacob. And uh, all the Naphtaliites were supposed to be up there. I don't know if that's how you say that, but, but I'll make up that word. And Joshua said, okay, I got these guys subdued. They're kind of, they're kind of pushed back. They're, they, we're in good place, but you've got to clean them up, said to the, the leaders of, of the, the uh, tribe of Naphtali. Well, the Naphtaliites got in there and sudden, you know, we're fat and sassy, and our crops are growing good, and these people aren't bothering us a lot. So they just ignored that. Until now... Just eight miles north of them, here's now a group of people who have kind of taken them over. Um, uh, uh, the result was they would have to drive out or they would have to deal with Jabin the king and uh, especially his general, a guy by the name of Sisera. Now, uh, let me give you a little clue on st- when you're reading through this stuff. Uh, If you you wondered how to pronounce it, I cheated today, okay? Um, At the breakfast table today, I was curious about a couple of names. Uh, If you don't have um, U-verse on your phone, I I don't get any payback for U-verse because it's free, right? But it's a really good thing. And somebody in here the other day I was telling about, uh, if you've got U-verse on your phone, you can pull up whatever translation you want to pull up and push a little speaker button. And they'll read it to you. It's so like on the way to work, or if you're going somewhere, you want to pull that up before you start. You can literally go to in this case, Judges 4, and I had him, I had this guy read Judges 4 to me this morning. Okay. Now, by the way, don't always take it verbatim because uh, for verbatim because the guy reading to me from the new American Standard this morning pronounced in one verse Cisera. And another verse pronounced it Cicero. So I think it's Cicero. But, but that is a great thing to be able to just have somebody read the Bible to you. You don't need CDs to do that anymore. You can do it in an app on your phone, it, it, which, by the way, was, if you remember, was developed in Oklahoma City by uh, the Life Church people. Uh, just a great gift to Christendom. So uh, Cicero was the guy they'll really have to be dealing with because he's the general of this um, this Canaanite army uh, under under the leadership of his king, Jabin. Now, look at verse 3. Okay. Oh, let me fill in your blank. So what you've got to know here is the problem was there were a few tribes left um, of unconquered people. Joshua said, finish conquering these guys and you'll have a time of peace. You'll have all kinds of peace. And they didn't get it done. So now they're dealing with the fallout from the lack of conquering some of these people, including Jabin and Sisera and the people in the north of Galilee. Uh, um, There's another thing to think about. And I put a reference in here. We won't go to it today, but um, in uh, Matthew 4, there's a reference later on that we'll that I won't even refer to, but I'll refer to it now. The place where they are, where these people are, is where Jesus grew up, North Israel. Uh, In fact, uh, Matthew, in Matthew 4, is going to pull an Old Testament um, prophecy that talks about how the people in Naphtali have seen the light of God. That's because... In this tribe, tribal area of Nathali is where Jesus grew up, in Galilee. Um, and so it's really just north of the Sea of Galilee, there, north-northwest of the Sea of Galilee. Okay, so there's been 20 years, there was 80 years of peace, followed by 20 years of oppression. And it's gonna result in hunger for the Israelite people. Go with me to six. I want to read uh two down through six to kind of tell you about the pattern of what they did. Now, this is this is later. In fact, next week, we'll study 6, 7, and 8. We'll primarily be in 6. And we'll look at the life of the judge Gideon. So if you want to read ahead, read 6, 7, and 8 next week. But he was dealing with another set of, of uh, Canaanite people called the Midianites. And let me read just a little bit about them. Because they were doing the same thing that um, the people from just north of Canaan were doing to the people in their day the power of midian would prevail against israel because midian the sons of israel uh, because of midian the sons of israel made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and caves and strongholds for it was when israel had sown that the midianites would come up against with the amalekites and the sons of the east and go against them so they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as gaza and leave no sustenance in israel as well as no sheep or ox or donkey for they would come up with their livestock and tents, and they'd come up like locusts for number. Both they and their camels were innumerable, and they came into the land to devastate it. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. So the idea here is that for 20 years they had been oppressed by um, by Jabin and his people here. And when you hear the word oppressed, what well, you need to think of, there are three or four different things going on. First of all, with servitude. In other words, they come alongside them and say, you're going to serve us. So here they are back into some kind of slavery. There was another thing that they occasionally did, and that was they would, um, um, they would tax them. So they'd say, okay, we'll, we'll live and not live here, but you're going to pay us a tax. But the worst thing that they did was what I read about here in chapter 6, The worst thing that the Canaanite people did to Israel is um, they would um, uh, take, they'd plant, Israel would plant their crops and they'd say, okay, boy, we've got a bumper crop. We're going to have plenty of food to get us through the winter. And right at harvest time, these surrounding peoples would swoop down on them and steal all their food. Now imagine, okay, Imagine going to Walmart or Crest or wherever you go, all right? And you have a shopping cart laden with groceries. It's going to last you a month or two. Laden, it's just got all the stuff that you need to get you through the next several weeks. And after you've paid out, some folks from Texas come and steal your shopping cart. <laughs> Now, I could have said Kansas, John, but I was doing this in deference to you. Okay? This is recorded, okay. It's really from the north, so I should have said a bunch of Jayhawks came and they steal your shopping cart. Well, that's what's going on. Oh, I've got a Jayhawk. I'm, I'm, I'm in trouble either way I go. But that's what was happening. The neighbors would come along and steal your shopping cart. It's like you got you got in the garage, you pop the garage door, you're unlocking the door to take the groceries inside, and when you come back, uh, the, your trunk lid is up. When you come back, there's nothing in it. The neighbors have stolen your food. That's what's going on here. And it's been going on for 20 years, and the result is hunger, abject hunger. Now, Jeff,
1: can I come back to you and have you read 4 through 7? Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, Barak, son of Abinam from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. Go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead the way to Mount Tabor. I will lure Sesera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Okay. And remember, they're oppressed by
0: Jabin's people to the north. They're starving. The kids have very little to eat. And into the vacuum of leadership comes a leader. Not the kind of leader that you and I probably would have have thought about. But a leader came forth. She was a prophet. As a prophet, that means she was a spokesperson for God. When you think of prophet... Uh, in this context, don't always think about somebody who foretells the future. That did happen in Old Testament days. A person who kind of could foresee the future or God let him in on what was going to happen in the future, like Isaiah and others. But Deborah was a prophet in the sense that she would hear the word of God and then speak it to the people. Kind of like Marty does. Like our pastors do. They hear the word of God and disseminate it. They speak it. Really important role. This is very interesting to me that this lady, Deborah, did this. She was a clear leader. So she was a spokesperson for God as a prophet. And she was a rec- already recognized leader. Now, isn't it interesting that there are sometimes that you can read about history. I'm reading another historical book now, so you know I'll refer to it occasionally. But um, isn't it interesting that throughout periods of history, whether our history or world history or whatever, in the vacuum of leadership, in, the, in a time of vacuum of leadership, some leader just kind of rises to the top. And it's wonderful to watch. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> the history of this church is, is very much like that. You had Marty who was here as an associate minister for a few years. He was you've heard him tell the story, he was planning to move on. But his leadership had risen to the top. And the leadership of this church said, "We want you're really our leader. Would you just stay and be our leader?" And 30 years later, wow, you know. So, this leader that rose to the top was a woman by the name of Deborah. I find that really intriguing, especially in the context of what you and I understand about the Old Testament. But it was clear here that she was the recognized leader. So she was the Lord's spokesperson and a recognized leader. Now, the Bible says in verse 5 that Jeff read that she kind of held court in the central part of Israel, in, in kind of the land of Ephraim. And uh, and people would come to her to have her settle disputes this dispute was bigger than I could sit in judgment over. We had to kind of get involved militarily in this, Deborah says. And so uh, she kind of deals with this. Now, now what I've got to say here is it interesting how sometimes cultural expectations can end up having a greater influence in the church than what the Bible itself says. Let me give you an illustration. I'm going to, I'm going to probably uh, divide what few supporters Jeff I have left into, into two groups. But I have a friend, a dear friend, a colleague, who literally, she's young, she's in her mid 30s, but literally in most rooms I am in where she is involved, she is just a, it, her leadership just always shows forth. She's amazing, smart, committed, um, biblical, all those things. And it's just interesting um, that we find ourselves, even those of us nearly twice her age, saying, what do you think? What I find intriguing about that is that her church not more than a stone's throw away from here, In her church, she's not allowed to lead for one reason and one reason only, because she's a woman. I just find that intriguing. I'm not going to speak judgment on it. I think you can tell where I am on this. But isn't it interesting how we let culture dictate instead of the Bible? And here it is clear that the spokesman for God in her day was a woman who had led, who had just risen to the top, Deborah. And she became the leader of the nation, kind of by default. Okay, so... She acts in verse 6 as a prophet in the call of Barak. As a prophet, she spoke for the Lord. And by the way, I want be careful with that, okay? I've got a friend uh, that was pastoring a church in Tulsa. And he had some guy that kind of claimed to have the gift of prophecy. And he called him one day. This guy was doing kind of a parent church ministry. He called my friend one day and said, The Lord has told me that you're supposed to let me use your building for this purpose. And my friend said, when he tells me, I'll call you back. (laughs) Be careful when I say God has told me to tell you this. But in Deborah's case, he did. And he said to her, go get Barak and have him muster some troops from a few of the tribes. Isn't that interesting? Now, he says to him, recruit a general... His name is Barak. And what does she tell him to do? Get an army. And she even tells him where to go. Now, Deborah is not the president. She's not the king. She's a judge. But she's a recognized leader. And Barak says, okay, uh, if you're telling me Lord told you to do this, I better do it. And he goes to do it. He starts to gather an army and, and marshals them in this place where she tells and by the way it's important where she tells him to go. Now verse 7 let's read it again I'll draw out to you Sisera the commander of Jabin's army with his chariots and his many troops to the river Kishon and I will give him into your hand now we're going to talk in a little bit about what's going on here in fact, um, I, as I was reading about this, I thought, um, what's kind of going on here Well, what literally happens. Deborah says, get a bunch of guys together, marshal them at Mount Tabor. Okay. Now I don't, that didn't mean anything to me cause I haven't been over there, but I began to read about it. Marshal this troops at Mount Tabor. And so, uh Barak goes and does that thing. And uh, what she knows is that when he begins to gather troops, that Jabin's going to hear about it, and he's going to marshal his army as well. Now, what do we already know about these guys that Jabin led? They're good with iron and chariots. Israel's not. But Deborah is enough of a leader and shrewd enough that she calls them to... To action in a place where a chariot will do them no good, it's in a mountainous, rocky area where, you know they're not going to do much with a chariot. They're going to need guys on foot with spears. Barak marshals all those kind of people, and when Jabin shows up with all, with all his chariots and guys, they're really kind of ineffective. How good of a leader, how smart is Deborah in this now? So, in verse 7, here's what she says to Barak. I'll draw to you, Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army. This is what God has told her to tell him. With his chariots and his many troops to the river Kishon, and I will give him into your hand. God says, if you'll do what I ask you to do, I'll do my part. God promises to do his part. Now, here's my question. The thing that you and I have to ask ourselves and answer every day, every season of my life, is what is God calling me to do? What is God calling me to do? Because I will guarantee you this. I will make you a promise. The same promise that Deborah made to Barak. If you'll do what God is asking you to do, he will always do his part. I defy you to tell me of a time when God told you to do something, and then he didn't show up. God says to Barak, through the lips of Deborah, if you'll gather the men and take them to Mount Tabor, I'm going to give Jabin and Sisera into your hand. So he does. Now, look at verse 8. Here we go. Let's finish it up here. Then Barak said to her, if you'll go with me, then I'll go. But if you will not go with me, I won't go. Interesting. He's got a caveat. All right. Well, um, now why does Barak issue this ultimatum? It could be that he is afraid he's going to need further instruction from God. And he knows that Deborah has the voice of God. So he can put the word instruction there. Could be that he's thinking, okay, what if I get out there and I'm wondering, does God want us to go left or right? I'm going to need you to tell me which way to go. Because God talks to you. Okay, I get that. It could be that he was just chicken. He may lack courage. Now, that's hard for me to kind of get. In, in fact, if you'll look sometime today at Hebrews eleven thirty-two, 32, Barak is included in the list of persons of outstanding faith in Hebrews 11. So he's evidently got faith. But you know, there are times when courage and faith aren't always mutually exclusive. You know, uh, uh, I'm sorry, cowardice in faith. There are some times when, uh, even acting in faith, I may still say, God, I'm scared to death. Could it be? I don't know. I just know that he wanted Deborah to go with him, and she agrees to do this. What I love about verse 9 is that Deborah doesn't hesitate. He says, I'll go to battle. I'll do exactly what you're me to do. We're going to Mount Tabor with 10,000 men, but I won't go unless you go with me. And Deborah says, cool, I'll go with you. She's decisive. I have trouble deciding where to eat lunch today. I wanted somebody to be decisive, and they weren't. Okay? Isn't it interesting that this woman was decisive in a day where somebody needed to be decisive. Don't you love it? Isn't there times when you and I read the morning paper and we think, you know, it's clear what we ought to do. Why didn't somebody just stand up and say, let's go this way? Well, they had that in this outstanding leader, Deborah. And she says, okay. But then she says, she says, uh, sure, I'll go with you, but you got to know something. The person who's going to have the victory will be a woman. And she's not talking about herself. I find that really intriguing. She's predictive again as a prophet and God has let her know where you're going to see victory, Barak, but it won't be a guy that seals the victory. It'll be a girl. Now, if you read on in the story, uh, it's kind of an incredible story, a, a lady by the name of Jael who's just listed as somebody's wife. Okay, Sisera, in the battle, uh, is, is feeling the heat. He runs away, and he lands providentially at Jael's tent and says, uh, you got to hide me. He, he, he makes her uh, agree to a lie. He's tired. She says, he says, I need something to drink. She brings him some goat's milk. I don't recommend that if you're really tired because it didn't work out so well for Cicero. But okay. <laughs> she gives him some goat's milk. He takes a nap. She's standing at the, the, at the doorway of her tent like he tells her to. But as soon as she goes to sleep, she takes a hammer and a tent peg and gives him the worst headache of his life and Sisera is done. Deborah says the victory will be won by a woman and Barak thinks okay, that's good. And Deborah, you've kind of led in this. Um, I'll, I'll give you the credit for leadership. That no, wasn't her. Another woman. Isn't that incredible part of the story? So Deborah is decisive. A woman will rise and defeat the enemy. Now look at verse 10. We'll, we'll close. Barak called Zebulun that's a tribe, and Naphtali, another tribe, together to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up with him. Deborah also went up with him. Look over in 515. I had to look further to figure all this out. The princes of Issachar were with Deborah. As was Issachar, so was Barak. Into the valley they rushed at his heels. Among the divisions of Reuben, there were great resolves of heart. But then these rhetorical questions are asked in the next two verses. Why did you sit among the sheaf folds to hear the piping of the flocks? Among the divisions of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. In other words, Reuben didn't show up. Gilead remained across the Jordan. Why did Dan stay in ships? Asher sat at the seashore and remained by its landings. Zebulun was a people who despised their lives, even to death. And Naphtali also, on the high places of the field. Here's the story. Some said, this is your fight, not mine. Even though Deborah had said, this is God's fight. And so, in your last blank there, some went. Many will join the fight. Some won't. That's what happened. There were literal tribes of people who, when... um, when Barracks people came to them and said, okay, man, we need some troops. We got we to take care of Jabin and Sisera and his guys. And they said, you know what? That's a long way from here. We're good. Let me know how it turns out. What I've got to ask you in context, is there a fight that you need to take up? that maybe even in your quiet time when you're reading something, or maybe occasionally when you're watching the evening news, you think, somebody ought to do something about this. Could it be that God is calling you to get into the fight? Could it be? I don't want to be in the the group of people who say, who the Bible says later, he was on a boat. Uh, he was too far south. God won the victory, but he won it without some people that were being called to get involved, and they just simply said, this is, literally, they said in Hebrew, it says this, I don't have a dog in this fight. You ever said that? I don't have a dog in this fight. Now, I've said it a lot appropriately, but there have probably been times when I have at least thought I don't have a dog in this fight. When God says, oh yeah, you do, pal. Think about your kids and your grandkids and et cetera, et cetera. When God, when when I occasionally say, somebody ought to do something about this, I want you to be careful and listen really closely. Because God may be saying to you, guess what, pal? You're it. You're up. Well, Lord, what in the world would I do in the face of that? If you'll show up, you and I will figure this out together. And with you and God on the same team, you're always a majority. You hear me? Okay, I'm going to love this study. But let that be a backdrop of it. Read at least six if you can't read six, seven, and eight. And we're going to talk about Gideon. He was a really unlikely leader, but, uh, but he's going to lead nonetheless. And I'll see you next week.